Hello, I'm Mercedes Stevenson, and you're listening to The West Walk. Tensions between China and the United States were heightened yesterday when a Chinese warship sailed dangerously close to an American destroyer in the Strait of Taiwan. The incident was captured exclusively by Global News on board HMCS Montreal. It was sailing behind the American ship as part of a joint mission in the South China Sea. At a defense summit in Singapore, Defense Minister Anita Anand says Canada and its allies won't be deterred by China's acts of provocation. Canada will continue to sail where international law allows, including the Strait, the South China Sea. And really, our overall goal is to increase the peace and stability of this region. Joining me now is retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman, the former commander of the Royal Canadian Navy and currently a fellow with the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Admiral Norman, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Mercedes, and thanks for taking an interest in this really important and interesting development. Well, some really remarkable video that we were able to capture on board the ship. Our Mackenzie Gray is, is reporting from the ship. He saw this all go down. They shot it and filmed it. I'd like to ask you to take our viewers through what you see happening here. Certainly. So we're, we start the video with uh, two ships in the shot. Uh, the one to the right is the American destroyer. Um, and the Montreal obviously is a, directly astern, I'd say about a kilometer behind the ship. And uh, we see the Chinese ship entering from the left of the screen at significant speed, I would add. I'm estimating she's probably doing well over 20 knots, so about 40 kilometers an hour. And uh, crosses dangerously close directly ahead uh, of the American destroyer. So uh, this is a clearly provocative and, and arguably unprofessional uh, event. Um, and I would say that the, you know, the Chinese captain knew exactly what he was doing. This was not an accident. We hear the terms unsafe and unprofessional often from the military, but you would describe this as, as dangerous. Can you explain to us how close they would be and, and why that's dangerous when you're at sea? Yeah, so it, based on the reporting, uh, it appears that they pass within about 150 yards, 100 meters or so. And we put it in a couple of perspectives for your viewers. First of all, the ships themselves are about that long. So, wow. uh, yeah, when you think about 100 meters, you think of a football stadium or something like that, but then you realize that the ship itself is bigger than that. And so you're inside the length. Um, so imagine you're driving down the 417 in uh, traffic and uh, somebody cuts right in front of you, um, and they do it not just because they're, they're, they're being, um, you know, irresponsible. They do it because they're trying to send you a message. Uh, and this is the kind of, we'd call a dangerous drive if it was on the highway and this is exactly what we're seeing and, and sadly this is a, a recurring uh, type of behavior from the Chinese we used to see this back in the Cold War with the Russians uh, and the, the Chinese have taken um, this right out of the Russian playbook and, and they're doing it regularly not just with the Americans not just with us but with a number of their neighbors uh, in in the region and basically they're they're bullying um, and provoking reactions uh, to say that uh, these are their waters and that we we shouldn't be there um, and it, it is unprofessional because at those speeds with the size of those ships um, you know you're talking hundreds of people here their safety is potentially at risk and, and it just you're going to provoke an incident and uh, who knows where it goes from there what does he have to do to not slam into the chinese ship he would have uh, either stopped his engines or potentially gone astern, in essence, hit the brakes um, and uh, allow the, the ship to pass ahead uh, more safely. 
And, uh, you know, these are the kinds of things that when I come back to why this is so dangerous, that you, you shouldn't have to make those types of, um, you know, emergency maneuvers. But he would have been watching it, tracking it on radar, the number of visual cues that they can use to see whether is it is it going to is it closing on a steady bearing or is it moving right? Well, you know, exactly. Is it going to hit them? You know, they would have it would have been. It would have been, I won't say pandemonium, but there would have been a lot of tension on the bridge, uh, absolutely. And, uh, um, you know, the, the collision was avoided, um, but not because of the provocation of the Chinese, but because it would appear the actions of the American captain. How common is it for it to escalate to that level versus kind of what we saw throughout the deployment, which was a Chinese ship about a kilometer away kind of shadowing to this sudden interception? Yeah, so that's, it's not that common, and that's why this is, this is worthy of, of note. Um, what I find very interesting is a couple things. First of all, about 10 years ago, the Chinese uh, took a lead role in uh, implementing a series of protocols that are designed to de-escalate these very types of circumstances with um, a whole series of Western Pacific navies. And uh, a number of these communications that you're referring to were put into a code book, in essence, you would call. And the idea was to prevent the incident, not to provide a mechanism by which you could escalate the situation, which is what we appear to be seeing here. And as far as the uh, maneuvering itself is concerned, I mean, the speed, uh, I think, is obvious in the video. And uh, the second thing is that from a purely nautical rules of the road perspective, the Chinese are crossing from left to right. Um, if you remember driver's ed, uh, if you come to a four-way intersection, you always yield to the vessel or the, the, the car on your right. That's exactly where the rule comes from. So they were, they were at fault for a couple of reasons. And then the allegation or the assertion that they're in uh, Chinese territorial waters, well, that's a whole other uh, angle to this story. Well, and that kind of goes to the, the why we're doing this. Um, when we were invited aboard, the Navy told us that they would be sailing with an American ship, and that's because there is now a policy that no allied ship sails alone through the Strait of Taiwan because there is concern. Um, when we're conducting these crossings, what is the purpose? What is the message that Canada and the United States were trying to send to China? Yeah, so the Americans call this freedom of navigation, uh, and it really goes back to the international rules of the road uh, for vessels at sea, and the fact that uh, despite the Chinese claim that the uh, Strait of Taiwan is uh, Chinese territorial waters, and that goes to the history and the politics of Taiwan, um, the, the reality is that it is international waters. It's well over 100 kilometers across, and uh, they're claiming that it's contiguous to Chinese uh, territory, and therefore they are, they are asserting uh, that they have an exclusive monopoly over what goes on inside those waters, and it's completely false. And the reason why freedom of navigation exercises are very important is that they demonstrate the fact that under international law, um, naval vessels like the American destroyer and Canadian frigate Montreal are more than uh, able to transit through uh, waters if they're going from A to B. And that this, this demonstrates to the Chinese, much to their annoyance, that uh, their claim is completely false and not supported by the international community. Now, you will always hear from uh, on the internet sort of um, these phantom accounts that pop up on Twitter and say, if this was off the coast of Vancouver, Canada would do the same thing. I explain to us the difference here. Yeah, so I was I was thinking of that uh, earlier today. So imagine, it, perhaps easier on the East Coast, if we were to imagine um, the the 
the straits between Newfoundland and uh, Cape Breton Island uh, being roughly the same size. And uh, we were to make a claim that this was uh, territorial waters, um, when in fact it's not. Um, the, the, it's not an issue of whether we could make the claim and assert the claim is would we go to such provocative measures as to not deny somebody access to those waters. Yeah, and, and no, of course we wouldn't. Um, and uh, this goes to the concept of the right of innocent passage, which is what freedom of navigation is all about. And, um, and it is important that the United States and the Allies, which is why we don't go alone, uh, to demonstrate that it's not just the United States that's making these counterclaims against China, that it is the international community. Uh, and it's important that, that uh, we be able to demonstrate that they do not control those waters, they are not Chinese waters, and that those have deeper implications in terms of um, the sovereignty of Taiwan. China has become more aggressive uh, in the area, in the air, on the sea, trying to, to push back, especially Western militaries. Canada has said that we are dedicated to implementing this Indo-Pacific strategy, and a huge component of it is naval. Uh, very, very large, because that is really where a lot of this is unfolding. There's concerns about freedom of navigation. And then I hear from sailors who tell me that their ships are in disrepair, that they are struggling to be able to deploy, that there often aren't enough sailors on a ship to be able to send it out with its original component. They have to pull sailors from other ships. The Navy has now brought in this policy that you can join for a year and then leave if you want because they're so desperate for people. Do we have the ability with our current personnel and ships to be able to implement the vision the government has for the Indo-Pacific and, and to be a player in this area? Yeah, I think there's some serious challenges as you've laid them out, and I think the human dimension of this is, is a key component. Um, not only are there uh, structural shortages in the current fleet from a sailor's perspective, but also as you look to grow the fleet, um, recruiting is a key part of that. Retention, obviously, is a challenge. Um, and, you know, the, the bottom line is uh, I'm not sure whether we can get there or not, but I'd rather try to get there and, and fail than admit at the front that it's all too difficult and that it's not worth trying. And I think that's kind of unfortunately where we find ourselves and there's a variety of reasons why we are where we are. But uh, you know, this is why you're seeing a frigate deploying from a Halifax base to go into the Pacific. That would have been unusual. There's capacity issues related to both the crewing and the uh, material condition of the existing fleet, which is why building the new ships is important um, you know, as quickly as possible. And uh, you know, you're looking at 35-year-old ships at the moment that are getting harder and harder to keep running. Admiral Mark Norman, thank you so much for joining us today and for your insight and explaining what we're seeing here and what's going on. Thank you, Mercedes, for your interest again. The House passed an NDP motion last week urging Special Rapporteur David Johnston to resign. Johnston says he's staying on until his work is done, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau defended his decision. He has undertaken this responsibility and this task of looking at foreign interference and reporting back to Canadians with the seriousness uh, with which one would expect of him. It is unfortunate that uh, the opposition parties are choosing to play politics uh, around uh, this issue. 
But opposition leaders say Trudeau needs to call a public inquiry. And that's backed up by NDP MP Jenny Kwan, who was recently informed China is targeting her. Joining me now to talk about this is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and MP Jenny Kwan. Thank you both for being here today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Jenny, I'd like to start with you because you have been both professionally and personally impacted by this. And I can't imagine what it's like to hear that Beijing, with all of this state power, is targeting you personally for standing up for human rights. What has this experience been like for you, and and what do you know about how you've been targeted? Well, I've had the uh, briefing from CSIS, um, and it's, of course, disturbing to know, right, that you are a target uh, by the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, With that being said, though, coming out of that briefing, more than ever, I've resolved to say that I will not be silenced. I will not be intimidated. Uh, I am going to continue to fight for human rights. For Canadians here, this is our basic charter right, something that I absolutely cherish. Uh, But I also recognize that there are people in different countries who do not enjoy those rights. So more than ever, uh, I am going to stand my ground to say that I I am going to fight for those rights and for the people who can't speak up for the people in Hong Kong, for the people in China, for the people in Iran, in other countries who are being silenced. Uh, I think if we have a responsibility uh, as allies to stand firm uh, and to continue the fight. That's a very courageous position, and I know appreciated by so many Canadians and a difficult one to take. You know, as you are determining, Mr. Singh, how to go forward and how to deal with this, you passed this motion in the House, um, but it was non-binding, which basically means it's, it's symbolic. I think a lot of people hear the motion passed, they think that that can somehow force David Johnston to resign. It can't. Why did you choose not to make this a binding motion and, and force the government's hand? Well, we have tools at our disposal and in the in the opposition, and one of those is to have a motion brought forward. What it does is it it raises the pressure. It makes it clear that we're putting out our position. We've got a prime minister who's been ignoring the issue. We've got a conservative leader who's been playing a game, a political game with this. It's not a game to me. It's not a game to my colleagues. We take this seriously, and that's why I'll be receiving the briefing. I'll be looking at their information, and that's why we said that Mr. Johnson is not personally at any sort of fault, the appearance of bias is so strong it undermines his ability to do his work. And so we've been very careful and prudent and very reasonable with our approach. And we're saying now the government's got to listen. Does that mean you're going to amp this up? Are you going to look at doing things that would be binding rather than just the the symbolism? Have the Liberals threatened to make this a confidence vote? I, I guess I'm not understanding why you haven't gone to the next level already. Well, this is something that we believe in, so we're pushing it, and we're using the tools that we have to push it. Voting in the House, making it known that the will of the Parliament is for Mr. Johnson to no longer continue. We also had hoped that Mr. Johnson himself would see that the will of majority, the majority of the House, or the will of the House, was for him to step down, and then that would have a, a powerful impact on him. It didn't, and so I disagree with the fact that Mr. Johnson isn't stepping down. We'll continue to put pressure. The other tools that people have suggested, uh, one is to trigger an election. I don't think triggering an election makes sense if the goal is to protect our election from interference. I want to understand the full extent of that interference, and I want to see some steps being taken to safeguard our democracy instead of triggering an election because I'm worried about interference in our election. To me, sounds self-serving, and that's why it's something that Mr. Polyev and Mr. Blanchet are calling for because I don't think they're very serious about dealing with this issue. But... If you're essentially saying to a government that has been on their watch, where where at least the last you know eight years have unfolded, that you will not hold them accountable, you will not put an election on the table as a possibility, aren't you kind of handcuffing yourself there? 
Well, not at all, because we can still raise the concerns. We can still raise the issues in but public. But there's no real consequence for them at the end of the day. Well, the consequence of an election would undermine, if my true goal is to defend democracy, it would be uh, illogical to say, I'm concerned about our democracy being influenced by foreign governments, so I'm going to trigger an election. That, that doesn't actually fit together logically. If someone is self-serving like Mr. Polyev and Mr. Blanchet, who just wants an election and is looking for an excuse, then I would understand that argument. But I actually genuinely want to see the full extent of what's going on with interference. I want to see some steps taken, some measures taken to defend our democracy. And that would be, I think, the consistent approach if one really cares about defending our institutions, our democracy, and making sure we're free from interference. I want to come back to the idea of the election in just a moment. Uh, but I want to ask you, Ms. Kwan, when you're hearing from the Chinese-Canadian community, what is their reaction to how this is all unfolding in Ottawa and, and whether they feel that their concerns are being heard? Well, the community members that I'm talking to, of course, are deeply concerned with what's going on. Some of them, are, I think, are also being targeted. Already we're seeing the chilling effect uh, of this. Uh, I've attended rallies, for example, in support of Hong Kong to stand with the people of Hong Kong with the unbelievable situation that they are faced with the national security law. And um, some of them are afraid to speak up. Some of them come to these rallies and they're wearing masks, even though we don't need to wear a mask anymore uh, and not for health purposes, but they're wearing a mask to protect their identity. Some of them have family members in Hong Kong or in China, and they are so worried about them. So their fear is very real, and I see that and I fully recognize it, which is why it is so important for us to not be silenced, for us to step up uh, and to be that voice and to carry their voice into the House of Commons. I made that promise to them just this last week that I would do exactly that. And which is also why the prime minister really need to listen to the people. They want this public inquiry for two reasons. One is that we need to protect our democracy. We need to send a clear message to foreign foreign interference actors that we will not tolerate this. And most importantly, we need to say to the community that we've got their backs, that the Canadian government's got their backs, and we will do everything we can to protect them and to ensure that our democracy is protected. That's why a public inquiry is absolutely necessary, and we need a commissioner that is agreed to by all official parties, mm -hmm. which is what our motion is about. And for the Prime Minister not to see that, and for for Mr. Johnston to not to see that. It is so unfortunate. Uh, but it's not too late. They can still do the right mm -hmm. thing. Do you think it's worth calling an election over this if the government will not change course? Well, there's a real problem to say that this is all going on and then we're just going to launch into an election knowing that there is going to be foreign interference that will continue. I've been told by CSIS that I'm being targeted and I will continue to be targeted. I am what they call a evergreen uh, uh, a candidate, I guess, uh, target. And so it makes no sense to say, well, let's just, you know, pretend that this is not happening and just go all in. What we need the prime minister to do is to do the right thing, launch a public inquiry. And that's why New Democrats are doing everything we can to put that pressure on the government to the point where the motion that passed actually even says the, uh, the Prague committee will start its work. The House is instructing Prague to start the work to identify a commissioner that we can all agree to and start the work on the terms of reference. Let's hope that the prime minister will wake up and smell the coffee. Mr. Singh, last question to you. You mentioned, and so did Ms. Kwan, concerns about going to an election when we're this compromised. I think that that is 
remarkable and quite frightening that, that we're in a position where you believe that we may actually have so much interference that we couldn't have a legitimate election right now. Am I interpreting that correctly? Well, my concern is this. Uh, I generally want people to vote. I want to see more people get out and participate in democracy. We know that over the years that there's apathy growing, less and less people are voting. And hearing about interference, I'm sure, is contributing to the apathy. People already say, what's the point of voting? I don't know if it's going to make a difference. My voice doesn't matter. On top of that, they're hearing about interference. It's eroding that public trust in our institutions. That, to me, is a problem. And to go to an election without having addressed those concerns, knowing the extent of the interference, I don't suggest that our outcomes of the election have been changed, but I do suggest that it has eroded the public's trust in the electoral system in some ways. And I don't want that to be what we go into an election with, this eroded trust. I want to rest restore that trust. I want people to know that our institutions are protected. We're taking it seriously, and we're putting in place measures that ensure that those concerns are being addressed. It seems like it could take a while for us to get to the bottom of it, but certainly we'll all stay on top of it, and we'll bring it to our viewers. Thank you both very much for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And now for one last thing. China continues to be an ongoing major concern, not only for Canada, but the international community on the high seas, as we saw this weekend, as well as here at home in our domestic politics. An issue the government will continue to have to confront, whether it's considering calling a public inquiry they say they don't want, or investing more resources into the Canadian Navy as we address those issues at sea. Before we go, I want to direct you to an interview we had done for this week with Alberta Premier Danielle Smith before the events with the warships broke this weekend. You can still watch that interview with Premier Smith. It is on our Global TV app or our website, www.globalnews.ca. You can also catch it on YouTube. That's our show for today. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back here next Sunday. I'm Mercedes Stevenson for the West Block.